Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Shred Coach Podcast with Tom Adams. On this episode, we delve into the complex world of employee law in shredding companies with attorney James Reed, who shares his expertise on navigating unconscious bias, employee relations, and legal pitfalls he's observed in small businesses. James Reed, the fourth. Welcome to the Shred Coach Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you here. So let's start with the starting place with this. Who are you? What do you do in the world? What's your, uh, why are you talking to us today in terms of you're on the Shred Coach Podcast? So what, 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 what do you do in the world? Tell me that first. I love to solve problems and I'm a passionate person that is up for a challenge and my number one strength is competition and achieving. And the best way to solve problems outside of playing chess or competing in sports is dealing with employees because they create a lot of problems. Right. So employee problems. So tell me more. So what do you do? So let's start with what, what, what's the practical for anyone listening? What, what's your, what's your job? So I'm an attorney Okay. and everything that I talk about strategy wise has attorney client privilege to it. And I'm at a 400 plus attorney law firm called Honigman. And what I do is I try to solve the problems, stack the chessboard or stack the card deck on the front end so that if there ever was a, a situation, we have all the mechanisms in place to make it go away pretty easily, even though I used to be just that back end litigator trying to put out fires. But by then, even when I won the lawsuit, Clients would complain, you're great, but it cost me $100,000. I hope I never talk to you again. Mm, Right. So part of what you do now is you help companies front end their, I guess, their HR legal strategy. Is that the right way to say it? That's right. I I call it advice of counsel. So I, I hope that instead of making a decision on their own where they could be accused of having bias or doing it illegally, they call me to get my advice to bless the strategy or identify the issues so that we can minimize liability. Got it. Okay. So our world is made up predominantly, the shred world is made up predominantly of small independent owner operators running, you know, not necessarily, but you know, they could be, they could be five employees right up to 50 to hundred employees. And then, you know, also listening our, our companies with much larger, but for the sake of the conversation, let, let's assume we're talking to owner operators who have smaller shops. You know, they might have 20 people. They might have 10. Labor is a big part of this world. So let's frame the, what we're going to talk about through that lens as Perfect. much as possible. So those are the ideal client because they can't afford to have me in-house year-round getting that $100,000 plus salary because the profit you know, doesn't make economic sense until you get usually at over a hundred employees. Right. So I'm a fractional rent an attorney where they could just use me for one hour a month on the hot issues. And that way I only cost a fraction of what having an attorney on staff would be. Got it. All right. So that's helpful to to realize. So let's actually dig into some of the things that are, you know, from your perspective are really important, or maybe let's, let's come at it from the angle of 
where do you see the mistakes that that smaller business operators are making, especially with labor-based employees today, in today's world, 2023, with the muckiness of the labor market? This is your thing. This is your legal thing. And so without violating any legal standards, be our advice of counsel today. Yes. And give us give us what are you seeing? If you if you get to sit down with somebody in our world, what are the mistakes they're making? What are the mistakes you're seeing that they're doing that can cause them problems down the road. So the biggest mistake is all owners, operators know all of the protected classes of their employees. So they know their religion. They know if they're married, if they're LGBTQ, you get to know them at a personal level because it's like a family when you're that size and you have to in order to have the relationship to keep them from going somewhere else. The downside is those people are the same ones that are involved in the firing decisions. And if you ever fire somebody, that employee could claim you knew about their pregnancy issue, about their religion, about their race. And because of that, they want a million dollars because they believe you factored in the protected class information into the decision because they deny performance was the real reason they're terminated. And most employers don't document the performance issues. It's in their head. It's in their gut. And they don't take the time to really coach you through the issues and give you a chance to really see what you're doing wrong and acknowledge it. So we've just uncovered two things there then, right? So there's the understanding the protected class piece. So I want to dig into that one a little bit more because in small businesses, you said we tend to know the protected class, like we know about the the full life and world of this employee of ours. So how do you, like, what's the response to that? Like, how can I not, I mean, I, I can't imagine not knowing that. So how do you, which led into your second point, which is document all of the performance issues. So is it about the protected class or is it from a legal perspective, is it recognizing that that protected class structure is something you have to be aware of as an owner? Is that, what's the distinction there? Great question. And I think the distinction is I'm not really worried about owners using the protected class information illegally. I'm worried about them being accused of it. Ah. So the unconscious bias, if they unconsciously factored that in, it's just as guilty as intentional discrimination. So my recommendation is to follow the advice you gave at your recent lecture, which is have an advisory board where they can just see the performance issues and not have skin in the game or be have that emotional attachment to the situation and can see objectively this is not a good employee for performance-related reasons, which is why usually they call me and get my objective take as to does this sound like someone that should be separated. Got it. So it's really important to understand that it's not about knowing it. It's about having the systems and process in place to like backstop any potential of that protected class stuff. Exactly. So I would hate for my training takeaway to be, I'm colorblind. I treat everybody as a widget. That's the worst advice ever. It's I see you, I value, I hear you. I know the uniqueness you bring. I appreciate your uniqueness, but I'm only grading you on your job performance. Got it. Okay. So if we understand that the second point that you led into from that was the ability to document performance issues. So 
I, I, I'm inferring from that that that's also a massive mistake that you see. Massive. The main reason is if you're an owner, you're going to give work to whoever does the good job, the easy button. So when someone makes a mistake or has a bad attitude, usually they get less work and the rock stars get more work. And then when that employee is laid off for lack of work, they're going to think, well, why are, are, is the younger worker getting all the work and I'm not? Is it my age? Is it something that my protected class information? And so the problem is owners are moving so fast, putting out fires and getting the work done. They don't take the time to really fully train, coach, give that feedback and sit down for an hour or two explaining how they need to do better. Right. But behind that then is the documenting. So give me your give me your opinion, your expert opinion on how to protect yourself as an owner related to documenting performance issues, which then leads back to protected class stuff. So important. It reminds me of going back to first grade where my son, James McGregory the fifth. Oh, you're uh, the fourth. I'm the fourth. The, the fifth is at home, so the pressure's off. And off me, the pressure's on him to create the next generation right. even better. Right, that's beautiful. But at his school, he's taught the only way to tell a story is if you follow the five W's. Who, what, where, when, why. That's the only way. And most of these write-ups or, or performance issues just say bad employee, insubordinate, bad attitude, and don't take the time to go over the five W's. And the lawyer in me added two more W's that are essential to documenting an issue. And my daughter had this situation in her class where a boy named Henry put a kick me sign on a student. And the teacher said, Henry, was that you that put the kick me sign on the student? And Henry goes, before I answer that question, were there any witnesses? <laughs> so you got to know the witnesses because every employment situation is a he said, she said case where the interpretations of the same fact pattern are different. So ideally, you would have a witness, with, which is why when you fire somebody, you should have another body with you mm -hmm. that can be a witness as to what was really discussed and what really happened at that separation meeting. And the most important W, the seventh, is want. You know, what do I as an employer want out of my employee to fix this problem? And what does the employee want to do to get better? And finding the solution is always better than bringing a problem to the company. So, okay, so back into that then. So I'm an owner and I have this driver, let's say, who his, he's not doing what he needs to. He's not locking the truck. He should be locking the truck. He's not, he's not doing the safety procedures that are required. And I need to document this because I see it going back to number six. How do you like, what's a witness look like in a small business? Is it another employee? How, what's, what's the process there? So in the ideal world, if you document it right away and meet with the employee, usually they can sign the document agreeing that's a true fact pattern. So the best witness is the person that did it admitting to Got guilt. It. Yeah. But uh, if not, maybe you have security footage and that gets deleted every 90 days. So you want to make sure you save a copy or you ask the employee, did anyone, was anyone around you when you didn't lock the door or you figure out on the shift who else was responsible for that. But ideally there was another coworker in that meeting or somebody that may have overheard the argument that took place. Got it. Okay. So 
but it, but the really important part and the part where a lot of people are making mistakes is they're failing to document the encounter they have that related to a performance issue, a problem, which then done improperly leads us back into protected class exposure. That's right. So for a couple of the reasons, one, if you don't document it right away, it's going to look like you're papering the file just to find a way to get rid of them. And then two, if you document after the fact, it, it could be pretext for discrimination because maybe you didn't document until you were aware of a disability issue or someone raising a protected class issue. Then you document that looks like you're retaliating against them for disclosing a protected class. Got it. Okay. So tell me about a the whole area of written employment agreements. Tell me, what are you seeing in terms of mistakes there, especially with smaller companies versus large? Large companies tend to have full-scale HR departments there. And let's say you're not using a PEO or a third-party company to help you with this. What mistakes are we making in terms of the written agreements we have with our employees? By far, the biggest mistake is no good deed goes unpunished. So once you're a small company and you accommodate someone because you know maybe they have to travel to Mexico to meet their family or Europe and you give them a couple extra days off you or you have some perk, you let them come to your poker game or come to your church. Once you treat one employee different than another, there's going to be a perception of favoritism. And those employees that are not getting that equal exact same perk are going to feel that they're discriminated against. And two, so many of these employers got to where they are based on being trustworthy. A handshake is as good as gold. Yeah. And you'll say an oral conversation. I'll take care of you, employee, as long as you you know work hard. And that could change the at-will relationship to forever employment unless they steal from you. And I think that that type of oral arrangement is too dangerous in this day and age. Even if you know the oral arrangement is understood and consensual, eventually there's a time where that employee feels desperate and they're going to make up allegations that were never true. And it's very hard to defend yourself. Right. But, but so there's the individual employee, but what you're also saying is what you do for one, say your special employee who's done some really good stuff, then then leaks into the rest of your your employees and there's an expectation that they should get the same thing but if they don't then something else is happening that's completely spot on so you absolutely have to treat all employees the same otherwise they're going to make up or truly believe they're treated differently for any legal reason Got it. So how do written agreements come into play in that? Like what's, what's that, what's that look like? Or what's the, what's the advice that you're giving? So one, if you have a handbook policy, that policy would apply to all employees. Mm. And usually it would have a paid time off policy that applies to all employees. Maybe you distinguish it based on tenure or other reasons. But once you have a transparent system, mm. you don't have the employees feeling like the other workers are getting a better deal than, than them. Yeah. So it's, it's really important in your agreements with employees to make sure that you've got the, like, like what I keep hearing you say, and this is the, I think this is the part that's so hard sometimes with a small business is, is you're placing all of this, like it's a foundation of, of support around you legally. And, and it's a foundation that includes your handbook. 
It's the written agreements, the employment agreements. It's the fact that every time you have an issue, you're talking about it. Like you're, you're, you're actually documenting it because you're building this stable base around you legally. It's That's exactly a great way to explain it. So I see it almost, imagine having a family and always having a prenuptial agreement and a postnuptial agreement in place when you get married. And I know a lot of marriages don't have that in place, but as a business, it's not your wife, it's not your husband. It's too dangerous not to have that in place. So this is not your true family, your true soulmate. You better have those documents in place every time. Mm, yeah, that's powerful. So what are, are, are there any other mistakes that, that are continuously showing up on your radar screen because of the work you do, because of the conversation you have specifically in the smaller business realm with employees, with the way, with the way that we're operating that cause a lot of problems on the back end? Truly, as you know, the biggest mistake small businesses make is they don't have on speed dial the top five trusted advisors that are not just specialists at the day-to-day -day business. And they need to know what they don't know. And every single business owner needs an accountant. They need an insurance agent. They need a, a leadership coach. They need a lawyer. And if you don't have those experts that you know and trust that also intimately know your business, life is too complex to be an expert at everything. Yeah. And, and I think that's such an important, but I, I'm going to go one step further with you because I think there's a really important distinction because a lot of small businesses tend to have a corporate lawyer versus an HR lawyer, right? And, Huge. and because the HR side of the equation now has become such, it's, I call it a dangerous ground. And if you're not clear on that, and a lot of corporate lawyers who can, you know, set up your, your S corp, I mean, or your C corp or whatever, or, you know, can help you write a a lease or anything, don't have any clue about HR because it's a completely separate field. That is a great observation. So at my 500 attorney law firm, all of the employment attorneys are on a different floor of the building yeah. than the corporate attorneys. It's night and day, different skill set. Yes. And the most expensive and important expense and valuable asset are employees. Yes. So to not have an attorney that is an expert in that area you're completely missing the boat just hiring a corporate attorney. Right, right. There, There is a, um, I'm jumping off in another, my brain just, you know, triggered. I think we covered that point really well, but there's another point here that that I've heard you talk about, which is which is the whole understanding of drug, drug testing. And, and I think as you go down the, and not in terms of not their value, but as you get into a more labor class, you tend to connect more with people who who have and this industry in particular, the shredding industry has has legal or, or around certification have laws around drug use. And so how are you seeing and what lessons are you learning related to drugs, sex, money, other things that have shown up in in your cases and the stuff that you work on? G give me a sense. Let's start with the drug side, because I think that's a that's an important side to talk about right now. Absolutely. I think right now with people taking less painkillers because they're harder to find, they're coping by having more alcohol and cannabis and other drugs. And with remote work and not being, you know, observed every day, there's definitely a, an abuse of drugs going on. And I think outside of 
mandated certifications and licensing of drug testing, I think what we need to consider is, are we fine with our culture being work hard and play hard? And I think that if you are, then you may want to minimize your drug testing, especially if they're doing it legally in Vegas, having some cannabis and some alcohol. If they're not high at work, it's becoming more mainstream to not use that against them. So I've had cases where there are high functioning cocaine and cannabis users on the weekend, but on during the week they're they're with it. And I've had to fire CEOs and CFOs and presidents because they had a zero tolerance policy at their company. So I think you got to be careful what you wish for. Mm. And the HR world is having a new mission about bringing felons back to work. So they had Martha Stewart be the keynote speaker for that. And oftentimes, if you bring a felon back to work or someone that had a drug issue that is better now, they can be your best workers. And when you're at a workplace shortage, to automatically screen out anybody that has a criminal record or a drug history, you're missing on a large pool of otherwise potentially capable applicants. Yeah. So it's re it's really important to because within the shredding industry, if you're certified, there are specific rules around drug testing and things like that. But it's it's recognizing that there is and there's going to be more because as more states adopt legalized marijuana, there's going to be more and more challenges to that requirement. There are already being a, a ton of challenges because if someone is taking marijuana to accommodate their disability, their depression, anxiety or stress. Now, maybe the answer is you're not really firing them for drugs. You don't want someone with epilepsy or some disability and uh, you, you use that as a way to find that out. And now you're getting sued for disability discrimination. Right. So it's it. And, and this is why I think it's so important to have conversations with someone like you. You, I, I think, are, are really adept at helping us think through it. But because if you're not aware of these kind of nuance things that are happening behind, it's very easy because I think we all want life very simplified. We want it black and white. And right now it's a wash with gray and there's all this gray area that is so hard to make sense of unless you're having these kind of conversations. There is one way to make it a bright line though. The bright line is if you could truly ignore everything we covered so far and just focus on the actual performance issues, it's always a legal decision to terminate for a major performance issue that is insufficient as long as you're potentially offering an accommodation to someone that needs one. Okay. So hit me with that again, because you sure. said it and I'm just trying to process it. So, so if somebody steals from you yeah, and you may have made some jokes about race and you may have a romantic relationship and all these other things, if they're truly stealing from you, you can fire someone for stealing from you. And if that's the reason you would fire anybody that stole from you, that would be a very, very strong defense to any lawsuit. So if there was a way to ignore all of the protected class information, which is why you may want to call an outside attorney yeah. or an independent advisor, if you would fire all employees for that performance issue, and maybe you have a pattern in practice of firing other employees for that same performance issue, you have a very strong defense to any claim, even though there may be clouded issues that are gray. 
Okay, cool. That's that's helpful. So I, I want to come at a, a different angle because this is rampant in our industry. It's rampant in other industries. But in today's world right now, it's really hard to get employees to drive trucks, to do labor jobs. So what happens and, and what's your legal take on someone who's stayed with you now for six months and there are perpetual they, performance issues are terrible, but you can't afford to fire them because you need them because you're desperate. You got more work than, so how do you live in that world where you've got, you've got a challenging employee and yet you need them. What do, what do you do with that legally? How do you, how do you manage that? Because it seems to me like if you allow this over time, now you're allowing it for everybody over time. And it starts to become, now you've got a performance to me, you've got a virus. Now it's not just one person. Now you got a virus going through the whole team. What's What's your legal sort of comeback to that? I agree with you. As painful as it is, you have to cut ties with that C-performing employee because not only are you setting a precedent where you have not terminated somebody for bad behavior and performance, what's even worse is you're going to demotivate all your rock stars. They're going to realize, especially if the pay in this competitive market is relatively the same, why is the rock star going to go above and beyond when, when they're getting paid just the same as the C player bottom performer? You're going to lose the culture and morale of all employees. And a happy, engaged culture can have 50% more productivity than a disengaged culture. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful because it, it, I think, especially in smaller companies, there's this massive fear about losing that person. But what they're often not seeing is the implication, the virus effect. There's a waterfall effect. And you're right. Most CEOs make the mistake of they're great at solving problems and they see the problem in front of their face, but don't always take one step back and say, how does this impact all of my other employees that are not a problem? Yeah. And I think too much of the time, CEOs are spending 80% of their time on the bottom 20% when they really should be spending 80% of their time on the top 20%. Right, right. All right, I'm going to jump to another area because I feel like I got this chance to talk to you. Exempt versus non-exempt is a big issue. In certain states, it's bigger. But what are you seeing, especially in small businesses related to exempt versus non-exempt, both the, the classification or categorization, and then what happens when uh, exempt employees, you do certain things with exempt employees. Give me, give me a rundown of that. Cause I think I see it in a lot of the conversations I have is people misclassifying and then the implications of not just the misclassification, but extras that are done that move, move the needle somehow. Yeah. I think at small businesses, they assume if you're a salaried employee, you're exempt and just stop there. And they say, okay, if someone's making 50 grand, or more, we don't feel sorry for them if they work a few extra hours here and there. And that is a huge mistake because in order to be exempt, you have to have sufficient job duties. And that requires the ability to hire two or more people, manage two or more full-time workers, the ability to make significant business decisions. And uh, if you're doing blue-collar work and physical labor, you can never be an exempt employee. Right. And within that, though, failure to make that distinction, what's the what's the legal implication of when you don't do that right? Like what's the what's the rollover effect that it's, ends up with you having to charge one hundred thousand dollars versus one hour? It's really bad. So if you get it wrong, they go back three years for a willful violation and a willful violation essentially means an attorney didn't 
advise you correctly. If you didn't have the advice of counsel and just randomly decided to do that classification, you would have a three-year window. So let's say they claim they're working 50 hours a week. It'd be 10 hours a week of overtime pay going back three years. And then as a matter of course, they do double damages as a penalty for doing it wrong, plus all of the attorney fees for that employee needed to prove their case. So it's triple damages, which often could be more than their annual salary. Ouch. And what's even worse is it's almost never isolated to one employee. Right. It's isolated to the whole class. Right. Because once once they've figured it out, once somebody's figured this out that it's happening in your company, they see it across the whole thing. And, and now you're going three years back on everybody on everything. And you're stuck on a class action, which could really hurt your brand in the media. Yeah. And the distinction here, I think, which is really important to note is sometimes you make this decision because you go, if I pay them 50, I expect them to work overtime. So there are creative ways if you plan ahead. If you're paying someone a 50 grand salary, what we could do is say, look, it's based on a 50 hour work week and you are getting 10 hours of overtime automatically mm. in your 50 grand salary. If you just explained it that way on the front end, you'd have no problem. Interesting. Okay. So you keep, you, you keep opening doorways and I know we only have 30 minutes and we've blown through 30 minutes, but it, it, the, the thing that I'm taking from this, that's so important is it makes zero sense now to me making random employee decisions about how they're set up their structure, performance reviews, all of that kind of stuff without some kind of external person talking to you about these decisions you're making. Exactly. You don't get paid enough to not be able to sleep at night knowing you could do a million dollar mistake. So why not spend 10 minutes calling your trusted advisor and sleep well at night knowing that I have to stress and be accountable for my decisions? You don't have to. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, James, how do we find you? Well, I'm easy. I give my cell phone out to everybody. 734-649-LUCKY1313. And my email is jreid, R-E-I-D, at honigman.com, H-O-N-I-G-M-A-N.com. And I also wanted to just wrap up. You mentioned sex. I like to cover every issue. That is a... It's a good one. Let's talk about... One. Let's end with sex. So a great one to end with is 75% of companies don't have any policy on romance in the workplace. And I think that you should strongly consider having a senior subordinate policy if a boss is in a relationship with a subordinate that needs to be in writing that both sides consent and have a mechanism where that subordinate can easily get out of that relationship without fear of retaliation and have a mechanism where that boss is not paying bonuses or evaluating that subordinate because even though you might be fair to that subordinate, all the other employees are going to feel like they're getting a smaller bonus because they're not also sleeping with the boss. Beautiful. Well, my man, it's, uh, it's been great to talk to you. You are a fountain of knowledge, and I, I so appreciate you sharing this with our community. And I know those who were at the iSigma show, when you spoke there, learned tons of lessons from you. But I wanted to keep this going and share it with the rest of the community. But James, thanks again for being with us. Well, thanks for having me and hope to be on it again next year. All right. Cheers. Cheers. 
Thanks again for listening to the Shred Coach Podcast with Tom Adams. Make sure to visit TomAdams.com for executive coaching, advisory board services, podcasting, training, and more. And subscribe to our email list so you can have first access to brand new strategies, tips, and ideas from trusted shredding and business professionals. Thank you.